This is a legacy episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast, originally released as part of the Lesbian Talk Show podcast group. Some references may be obsolete. The show looks at lesbian-relevant themes in history and literature, has interviews and discussions about current historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past, and presents new original historical fiction for your enjoyment. Last week, Hannah Clutterbuck Cook and I found we had far too much fun to contain our conversation in a single podcast. We're back with Anna Clutterbuck Cook to talk more about FF historical fiction. So you have some very definite ideas of what you're looking for in your ideal FF historical romances. Uh, let's talk about that. And if you can think of okay. examples of books that hit your sweet spot on any of these features, this is a really great context for mentioning them and recommending them to our listeners. So what are you looking for? So I think I would say, uh, first of all, that when I think about what I'm looking for in a romance novel, um, it's not necessarily distinct if I'm thinking about FF versus any other genre that I'm, I'm reading. So... I, I feel like there are ways in which the FF romances that I have read have fallen short on some of these things, and we've talked about them in the previous segment, um, things that structural issues with you know characters and novel length and all those kind of things. But when I think about sort of what, what really hits my sweet spot in terms of historical romances in general, they are things that I think map to FF relationships as well as MM relationships and, and other types of relationships. I feel like I'm always looking for uh, protagonists who have a really strong depth of personality in life. So when they show up at the beginning of the story, um, I really want to know who are these people, what has shaped their life so far, how do they spend their days, you know, what are their social networks like? And I think that when we were talking about people having trouble imagining women existing in previous, you know, existing independently in relationship to each other in historical spaces, part of that comes out of what the stories that we've all been told about the past and, you know, how patriarchy made it impossible for women to exist outside of, of male spaces. Um, and Rebecca Traster's book, All the Single Ladies, talks about this a lot even in our contemporary world, that the stories we tell about women's lives really are shaped by the mainstream stories we tell, I should say, mm -hmm. are shaped by their connections to men, whether it's their fathers or whether it's their husbands. And if a woman is single in the sense of not being connected to a man, we don't understand how that story works. And I think that for an FF romance to be successful, you really need to think about how those stories work. And once you think about how women existed in the world in the past, outside of relationships to men, you can start thinking about what those, what the shape of their lives individually look like, and then how two or more of those lives will come together to shape something new. And I think that that's where, when we see a lot of these FF romances taking place in, in really short form, so novellas and short stories, you lose a lot of the time to get to know these people as characters because you've got 30 pages to <laughs> get them together and 
I just read, it, it was a lovely little Christmas story by um, E.E. E. Ottoman, and I'll find the title for you. Uh, I can't remember it off the top of my head. But it was a little Christmas story about a woman who was a baker and she falls in love with the, I forget what the other woman's occupation is, but they're two working women in like 1840s New York. And the one woman comes into the shop to buy some bread and they have this little interaction and they end up getting together at the end of the story. But you you know, you're starting to see, I think, more historical stories trying to grapple with like, how did women how did women make their money you know we're not they're not all heiresses yeah you know what did the shape of their days look like what were the factors that you know made their business more precarious potentially because they're women owned faces or whatever um how did they access capital all of those kind of things and i'm really glad to see more of those things happening yeah Um, you, you you mentioned heiresses and it it always strikes me that some of the most popular tropes in mf historical fiction work backwards for FF because, you know, heiresses were, had some of the least free lives in terms of choosing their own life context, their own life path. A rich man had a lot more power to decide not to marry or to marry and, and live separate from his wife if he was interested in male relationships than a woman in a similar economic position would have. So we are set up with these popular tropes. And, and, and it's reminding me of a book that I've been seeing discussion about on Twitter recently about the sexism in um, medical and safety studies that assumes the male body and assumes the male life and that therefore creates active hazards for women in that like, you know, seatbelt studies and and you know drug studies and whatnot which is an odd tangent to go off of when talking about historical fiction but in the same way i think sometimes we're set up with these these popular tropes that are mismeasured to women's lives and therefore lead us to believe that either women couldn't have these stories or that women's stories have to be like the male stories yeah, I think that that's a completely valid observation, like bringing the medical studies thing in, because I think that is our, our, I talk a lot about this in terms of constructing sex scenes that we're used to written sex taking certain story arcs or the, the, the progression of a sexual relationship in a romance length novel. You sort of have these set scenes um, and they can be unique to the characters, but you sort of know that there's a ladder of intimacy and you get to the, you know, you get from, you know, handholding to, <laughs> to sex and what does the sex look like? And there is a way in which the heteronormative sex stories that we tell can translate into MM. And to be fair, there are some authors who are doing wonderfully queer deconstructions of what sex looks like in MM romance as well, and, and also MF. I've read some great MF stories that aren't just, you know, kiss to intercourse sort of sort of <laughs> narratives, but people in contemporary life are still so confused about how sex between women works <laughs> that it can be really hard to structure a romance narrative of progressive relational intimacy that includes sexually explicit scenes because people aren't sure what that even entails. And so I think much like with your, your medical studies, our, our templates are still so much dependent 
on these particular activities that categorically look different when you're talking about the bodies of two cis women or even cis and trans women. What does sexual intimacy mean to them? And there's no sort of ready ready storyline for us as both writers and readers to put that in into neat little categories and say, okay, this relationship is is a go, this is what's going to happen. And I think that that's much like the how are they going to make money to survive question causes people to stumble a lot. And even when you look at the historic record, so much of the of historic commentary on women's sexual relationships is focused on the heterosexual model, where sex between women only comes to people's attention and only becomes an anxiety when it is penetrative sex with a penis-like analog. And you find that often, over and over again in history, that's what, that's what the law was focused on, that's what social structures were focused on, uh, that if you were doing something other than you know, a, a, I don't want to say heteronormative, but a hetero-like sexual activity, people didn't treat it as sex. And therefore, mm-hmm. in, one, in one way, we don't know about it because nobody was making a big fuss about it. But in, the, in another way, it, it becomes invisible as a lesbian activity if what two women are doing is kissing and embracing and, and uh, speaking endearments and maybe fondling each other's breasts. Uh, right. and, and they may not have categorized it as sex. And therefore, it doesn't fit into our, our narratives of what the sex scene in a book looks like. And I, sort of, this is maybe the reverse of what we've also just been saying, but that one of the frustrations that I have, I, I had in FF fan fiction that actually prompted me to start writing was that a lot of times when FF relationships came up in the fandoms I was reading in, they would be very non-explicit. And so the relationship might be there, but the people who were writing it were decent desexualizing it like they were turning it very much into like we're best friends and we kiss a lot which can be valid but it was really interesting to see how the differently ff relationships were treated in fandoms where the mm relationships were like plot what plot (laughs) you know like all the sexual activity you could possibly imagine and thinking about that the sexism involved there and the heteronormativity too, but that people couldn't, because in our culture, we think of our contemporary culture, we think of men as the ones who have the active sexual interest and sort of precipitate sexual activity in a lot of the narratives that we carry around in our heads. When you have two women, neither of whom is responsible for precipitating that activity, people are really confused about how it happens at all. <laughs> <laughs> and so a lot of the fan, the fan fiction that was written just didn't have, it, it didn't have an integrated sense of how the sexual intimacy of the characters fit into the story and fit into their lives. And that's definitely something I also look for in my historical romances or any romance that I read is... I really want to understand not just how these two people are great in terms of any sort of interrelational, you know, friendship, how they, how they're going to construct a life together, but like how, how they feel about each other in a really embodied 
way. Yeah, you um, mentioned that in your and, notes, that you were looking for the yeah. physicality of the experience. And that's something I've heard yeah. from, from other people. Uh, Farrah Mendelssohn mentioned that, you know, one thing she looks for in FF writing and that she tried to put in her own novel was that sense of the physicality of the intimacy, the embodied intimacy. Yeah, and I, I think that for me, the most effective and what I also try to do in my own storytelling is think not just about like geometrically how are things happening <laughs> in this room, but why are these characters doing these things? What does that feel like to them? And I think when you, that's a depth of writing that kind of happens at the second or third pass a lot of times that you kind of sketch out how the, how the scene is going to play out. And then you, at least this is how I do it, would go back and think about, you know, well, how are they, what are the characters feeling that leads them from point A to point B to point C? Have they done this thing before? Are they worried about this thing? You know, if they did it before, how did that feel? Does this feel different than the last time they did it? all of those kind of questions that help you put yourself in the mindset of the character who's choosing to do this activity in this moment with this person and why does that matter? And I think it's a really great opportunity to kind of step back from the scripts that we all carry around about how this narrative is supposed to go and think about, well, if these two specific people with these two specific lives and sets of feelings and motivations come together, what would feel good to them to do together? One of the things that I reacted to in our original Twitter conversation, and, and this was, it wasn't a conversation yet, you were making some comments and I reacted to it, because it's very hard for an author not to read commentary on literary motifs and take it personally, so, so this is not me taking you personally, but I get a lot of feedback from readers who, who want my books to have more on-page sex. They want my books to have more heat. They want, they want to see those characters going down and dirty. And, and for me, it, you know, it was, I came to it with a, from a number of different points of view. One is genre. And when I started writing the Alpenia series, I was very much modeling the genre on, on George Hire. Who does not have on-page sex? And yet, you know, you know that her characters are, you know, deeply and passionately in love with each other. And I was coming at it from a sense that, well, well, part of it, I was coming at it with a sense that I was not at a point where I could write good explicit sex scenes. I, I, I'm still working on that concept. I, I have a story where I want to first venture out into it, but it'll be a short story. And then the third place I'm coming from is that I am, in fact, asexual. So my ability to put myself in a character's headspace who is feeling sexual arousal and, and you know, feeling it generally and specifically is affected by that. And it was, to some extent, a specific decision I made that, that my books will clearly indicate that these characters have sexual relationships and even give you cues to know when they're off in the next room doing it, but that I'm not going to write explicit sex scenes because I don't think I could integrate them into the story as well. And I, and I think it is possible to write perfectly good historical FF romances without having explicit sex. So it always, it always puts my back up when I basically have a reader say, you know, this was a perfectly good story, but it eh, doesn't work for me because no sex. And, and so that was why I had that reaction to your comment. It's like, I appreciate the people that readers want this, that they are looking for this. 
but but I I feel this this deep anxiety that there are readers out there who feel that a book cannot be a good book unless it has explicit sex. And I don't think that's what you're saying. But that was one of the, you may remember that I kind of bristled a bit in that Twitter thread. Yeah, and I, I think I, I would definitely say that I don't believe that fiction and even romance fiction requires on-page sex to be romance. I think for me, it is such an integral part of a romantic relationship that I, I miss it when it's not there. I just read a couple of, I can't remember her first name, Alan is the last name, uh, two steampunk punk romances that were wonderful uh, little steampunk fantasies. Um, the second one is Kiss of the Spindle, and the first one, it's a, the second one, Kiss of the Spindle, is sort of a, a Sleeping Beauty story, but set in this 19th century steampunk universe. Um, and the first one in the series is the Beauty and the Beast narrative, again, set in the same, the world building is wonderful, yeah, the, and, and I'll track like down I'll track down all these references and make sure they're yeah, included in the show notes. I'll find the title as well. And and I really enjoyed them. They did not have explicit sex in them and and I was sad. I I, I read them both and I really liked them as stories, but for me when I seek out romance genre specific material, that is a piece that I that I am looking for. Um, so it actually helps me when I was reading the the two steampunk romances to think about them as like steampunk fantasy with a romantic element in them. Mm -hmm. And then I wasn't like looking for certain pieces of the story that I felt were, were missing. I was like, Oh, this is, this is a great fantasy story. <laughs> and I, and I do think. Is it a matter for you that romance is a genre in, in your personal take on it should have sexual content and that, that it can be a story with romantic elements, but it has to have, sex for it to be a romance no I, I don't <laughs> think like as a genre the definitionally the genre must have explicit sex so i don't i don't believe that and i know that there i mean there are whole there are whole conversations in the romance genre about sort of how do you how do you rate the eight levels which yeah, is how do you weird, tag it sort of a weird, it's a weird way of even thinking about that yeah um, but but similar to in fan fiction you you tend to rate things based on how explicit they are. I think a big part of what I seek out in both fan fiction and romance is the sexual piece, which I am very interested in as both a historian, uh, a historian and as a reader. Like I've always been really interested in how you portray human sexuality on the page and how you think about how how we think about sexuality as part of both identity and relationship so it's a very personal preference mm -hmm. but but when I, the reason that I came to fan fiction and then to romance was I was following that piece of story that that type of storytelling and the storytelling about that particular part of human relationships uh -huh. that I wasn't finding in other genres uh -huh. and so so it's a very personal yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, sorry if I made it yeah. sound like I was challenging you on that. <laughs> but I, I do want to be careful because I know that there are people who are sort of in the opposite vein, like don't want explicit sex in their romance. And I don't think that that makes what they're reading not romance. Um, yeah, and, and for me, not... as a reader, I'm, I'm fine with there being 
sex in my romance as long as it doesn't feel like and now we're going to stop and have the obligatory sex scene i there was once when i was reading a, a series of ff historical novelettes where I, I gave up after the second one was because it was basically and now we're going to dress these people up in costumes and now we're going to put them in bed and now they're going to have wild sex and now we're going to have the second sex scene and now we're done and if, it's sort of the opposite for me it's like i'm coming here for the history and the sex is okay but but it shouldn't be all about the sex so i can see what you're saying it's like you're coming here for specific things and it's fine if they aren't all there but there are some of them are what you came for yeah i would also say too that for me it's really important to have the the sexuality piece happen within a larger narrative so before before i came to the romance genre through fan fiction i was also reading erotica short form erotica anthologies and things like that and i found them super frustrating because there was no storyline right you get these characters with sort of minimal character development in some depending on what you want um, more or less successful little scenarios but you don't have the larger story of how does how does this scene or how does this relationship fit into these characters whole lives and so what I found in the romance genre that I wasn't getting elsewhere in shorter form erotic fiction was how does this intimacy fit into a whole world of both these specific characters and their relationship, but also their, their even sort of bigger circle of, you know, how does, how does that relationship then fit into the other relationships that these characters have with each, we you know, with their families, with their friends, the world that they move through. And so just, you know, yes, I'm coming for this particular piece, but it's very important to me that that particular piece be embedded in a story about the whole person. You mentioned another thing you're looking for is stories where the romance is embedded in a community. It's embedded in a web of friendships, of family. So, so talk about more about what you're looking for there. Yeah, so I think this kind of builds on what I was saying earlier about how a lot of times it seems like people struggle to create, you know, sort of full depth identities for women characters in FF romance. And one of the things I think is both sort of politically important to me and narratively important to me is that particularly in historical fiction, we have this fictional space to think about how people with marginalized identities of various kinds did live and thrive and make space to be themselves um, in the past. I particularly appreciate authors, um, I think both K.J. Charles and, and Kat Sebastian do this really well, working with characters who aren't moneyed aristocrats, or at least mm. all moneyed aristocrats, right? Where people are working for a living are people who have various types of, you know, really hard struggles, but through the relationship that they build that's at the core of, of a romance novel, and then all of the relationships around those people, they create a life of a, that has more stability than they had before the relationship came together. And that particularly can happen really beautifully when you have a series of novels that are all interconnected so that the queer community builds over time. 
and that each novel has a particular relationship at its core, but it connects to the network that's already in place. So that the one I'm thinking of right now is Cat Sebastian's uh, The Soldier's Scoundrel was the first one, and then The Lawrence Brown Affair and Ruin of a Rake. These three stories are all MM romance, but you start out with the core that the core couple that gets together in the first one is like an independent investigator and a soldier who's just come back injured from the Napoleonic Wars. So they get together around investigating a, an abusive husband situation where the the sister of the soldier has been married to someone who's really cruel and she actually has she and her female companion and then they have a couple of children and they're trying to figure out how to get the sister and her companion out from under the control of the abusive husband so they're a little they're a little ff relationship (laughs) that kind of develops in the background of the story and then in the success of two stories you again have characters who were introduced in the first novel who then end up coupled together and by the end of the story, you have like this family re- you know, reunion <laughs> scene where you have, you know, every single couple's totally queer um, and you have some cats and dogs to boot, and, you know, and they're all taking care of each other and each other's children in, in these various ways. And I think that it is both historically plausible that people created these kind of mutually supportive networks for each other. And I think critically important in the present for readership to reimagine history with these kind of stories to realize that you know queer identity even if it doesn't have the same specific categories as it does today has always been around and always been possible and in fact is part of the historical narrative despite the fact that a lot of times people in you know traditional publishing environments I don't know this is skipping around a little bit, but RWA published a couple of letters earlier in the year in response to an essay about white supremacy and romance. Both of the letters were very upset that the author of the original article, Elizabeth Kingston, was talking about racism and romance. And Gosh. <laughs> one of the letters is yeah. One of the letters also brought up queer queer identities and historical romance and was like it's basically saying it's ahistorical to have happy queer characters. And, you know, it's really important if you're going to tell stories about queer history to make sure people understood how terrible it was back then to be queer and how life-threatening. And it felt so obviously... Wrong-headed? Yeah, I mean, wrong-headed. But the perspective of someone who thought that the way to be respectful of queer representation was to was to acknowledge how horrible it had been. And that if you give queer characters happiness, you're somehow disrespecting the, like you're erasing the discrimination that they experienced. And I was like, you you almost got there. You almost (laughs) got there. Didn't quite get it. This person, I don't think understood that by saying, you know, if you had been born before 1969, your life was going to be miserable as a queer person, erases whole swaths of queer history and really has this dichotomy of like, either you're happy or you're sad, like either you're joyful or you're miserable. And if you experience discrimination, you couldn't possibly have formed happy, healthy relationships with other people. And so I actually think that doing the project of writing romance that has these this larger sense of queer community 
in it is uh, is doing really important reparative work around sort of the mainstream understanding of queer history that queer people were so oppressed until Stonewall and equal marriage equality and now everything is good yeah, but the, the listeners cannot see, but I am rolling my eyes at that. Yeah. But that, that, that was one of the places I came from back in the 80s when I first started researching queer history as a potential author, because I had found that every time I started imagining a story to write, it was a coming out story. It was a, you know, what is this strange thing I am feeling? Nobody has ever felt like this before story. It wasn't so much that I knew that to be wrong, but I felt it to be wrong. And I wanted to write stories. uh, I wanted to write historical romances about queer women who knew already that they were part either of a, a social continuum or a historical continuum, a conceptual continuum. I wanted characters who already knew this is a thing. You know, you can be this thing. And, and now I'm going to act on it. And the more, I have done a lot of research, and there a lot of research has now been available that wasn't available back then, to identify communities and traditions and ways of being that embody this sense of continuity and community and networking. I can still surprise myself when I'm looking at, I, I did a show on a 19th century actress, uh, Charlotte Cushman, because her name kept coming up in a book called Improper Bostonians, which is about queer Boston. And all of these female couples in 19th century Boston who were connected to her in some way. So I I decided I need to look at her further. And her entire life is one vast networked community of female couples in the US and in England and in Rome and supporting each other and stealing each other's girlfriends and having, you know, just being part of this enormous uh, female-female community that history does not tell you about. In fact, of the two biographies of her that I read for, for putting together the show, one of them entirely erased that aspect of her life and basically, oh, well, you know, she was a single woman and she was unhappy about it and she had some friends. And the other one really embraced looking at her as a, as a woman, as part of a woman-centered community with a vast fandom of female viewers of her shows who specifically interacted with her in a desiring fashion. And I, I want a miniseries about her. Um, I mean, I, I absolutely do. Because it tells this story of, of women being part of a community of queer women in times before the 20th century. And I do think, I agree with you, that is so important to be aware of. Yeah, one of the series that KJ Charles writes, Sins of the Cities, she's created this basically a queer bar, gentleman's, a gentleman's club, right? Um, that you have to, again, we're back to the Whisper Networks, you have to know the people who can then introduce you to the club in order to get in. But it's this, you know, sort of once you're in the inner circle, it, it's a space where you have all of these queer men who are circling through each other's lives and, and become, there are some established relationships in that community. And then there are a lot of times in the stories one of the characters who's part of that community that falls in love with someone who is outside of, you know, is coming in from the outside, but is able to get connected up to this this group of men who are all queer in some fashion. And through that community, because her stories tend to have kind of a thriller slash mystery aspect to them, so there's often a murder to solve. 
she's always very proud of herself when she writes a story that doesn't involve dead bodies. <laughs> um, but, you know, you sort of have this, the danger aspect of the story that usually the queer community then comes to the rescue on some fashion because you've got all these these relationships that in resources of the people who are in that space. And I really do like how fiction can reinforce the importance of that larger community. And I think it's something that often queer romance writers get better than the sort of traditional MF storylines because the, the tropes that we have for MF relationships to marriage tend to be very nuclear family yeah. oriented. You get the couple together. If you're lucky, you've got, you know, a lot of times those series will have siblings or something. So you get different siblings getting paired up through the story or something like that. But they tend to be very much family focused. And I think that the, the queer authors are, are very consciously creating found families for their characters. Sometimes those will include elements of you know, siblings or parents or, or children from previous relationships, but I see that work being done very purposefully in the queer romance space, and I really appreciate that. So another thing you mentioned that you are definitely looking for is feminism and intersectional identities. And I think we've touched on that a bit, especially in terms of you know, having the presence of the whole spectrum of sexualities and genders. So what else is really important to you to see in your romance? Yeah, I, I really appreciate people who have much like with thinking about women and other people who are economically contingent. I'm seeing more and more romance that involves people who aren't white, people mixed race from all different contexts. Courtney Milan, who mostly writes MF, but has also written MM, um, and I think has an FF short yeah, coming I've out. Got, uh, I've got a, a title for her on my upcoming list, I think. I'll have yes. to look up what the title is. but So I'm, I'm excited about that one, too. But she has the series that she's sort of working through right now started out with a short story in Hamilton, the Hamilton's Battalion yeah. anthology uh, that was two, two men, one a white Englishman and the other one a black American. And out of that couple, she has built this whole family of uh, transatlantic, like the, I think the nephew of the, the black merchant who features in that novella has a son who falls in love with an English white woman who's an abolitionist. So they have that theirs is an interracial relationship. And then she's another one of the merchants in that family, I think ends up with a woman from Hong Kong. So, so she's doing some really interesting things on a sort of global scale looking at interracial and a whole gender spectrum of, of things going on. I'm seeing more and more people incorporating neural atypical characters and characters with different ty- types of physical and mental health issues. Kat Sebastian has a wonderful character who, who struggles with, he has malaria. Mm. Um, He's, he's been in India, and he develops malaria, which is treatable, but... But it's chronic, chronic yeah. And so, and so he has to figure out how, to, how he's managing the illness. It's a chronic illness, but figuring out sort of how to talk about that with his boyfriend and, you know, them trying to figure out how to establish a life together that accommodates the, the fact that this character is going to go through periods of really extreme unwellness. So I like all of the ways in which people are thinking about not just 
two white gay dudes who are financially secure and therefore have no problems in the world, you know, getting together that they're really thinking about intersectional identities and a whole range of, you know, economic and personal levels. Yeah, I have to say that one of my perceptions of, of the lesbian side of romance, and especially in contemporary romance, and I may be doing a great disservice here because my, my familiarity with the field tends to be you know, superficial from looking at titles and descriptions rather than being a deep reader, but that there is an issue around diversity, especially of ethnicity, and that you know, it's not that there are no characters of color in lesbian romances, but it, it they tend to be you know about that, or they tend to be separate. And and I will say the 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 lesbian writing community, you know, as as a self-identified community, tends to be really really white. And this is something that we have not we have started thinking about grappling with. But it's one of those again a vicious circle where if I were if I were a black reader, if I were um, a reader of one of the Asian cultures and I came in and I looked at lesbian, I would say, I, I don't belong here. I, I do not exist here. Why should I stick around and try to change things? I, I know that when I go out looking for authors to interview, I'm very actively looking for more diverse authors with diverse being code word for not always white. And it's it's something I do have to actively pay attention to and search for and make uh, an effort because if I were only looking statistically at who's got a new book coming out that I want to feature, it would not be as diverse. It, it is something that, that we as a community have to engage with and recognize our own prejudices, even in just you know, what books we like and promote. It, it's, yeah, it's there. Yeah, and I think that one of the things white readers and writers can do, not just in the lesbian community, but you know, anywhere in publishing, which remains incredibly white, is thinking about, and, and also in, I should say in fan fiction as well, is that a lot of our fiction reading and the preferences that we bring to that have very deep and not necessarily explicit roots in our comfort levels, right? We want to read the things that feel that we resonate with and that we're comfortable with most of the time if we're doing leisure reading, if we're doing reading for pleasure as opposed for, uh, for business, and really realizing that what feels comfortable and familiar and resonant with us is shaped by pervasive cultural racism so that if we find ourselves saying this character is unrelatable or this character is unlikable, that's not a feeling that comes out of nowhere that's some sort of innate preference that we have. We have been taught to have, to cultivate emotional connection with certain types of characters and with certain types of situations. I think a lot about that in terms of women writing MM, whether they're queer women or not, because from the moment we're born, the stories that we're exposed to teach us to center the male experience to connect with male protagonists in fiction, to really try to cultivate, actively cultivate empathy for those male characters because they are at the center of the stories that we're given to read and we're given to watch. So it's like, if you look at the cultural landscape out there, to go back to what you were saying about fan fiction and how hard it is to find a cultural product that has two well-developed women 
to put together in a relationship in fan fiction, we're given so many stories where you've got the male buddies or, you know, at least one, two, if not more, really fully fleshed out male characters in a television series that we can put together, most of whom are white. I think it's really hard when you're talking about people's pleasure reading to walk that line between saying cultivate awareness of why you're resonating with certain stories and not others while also not telling people your preferences are wrong like or problematic like (laughs) because it can be really easy especially when you're talking about romance and relationships to turn that into well if you're attracted to a white character in this story you're doing it wrong yeah, yeah. I, I've run into this for, for the, the gender identification, even within less fixed circles. I, I once tossed out on a Facebook group the question of, you know, if, if you think you don't like lesbian historicals, what is it you think you don't like about them? Uh, I, it was a very skewed question. But one of the responses I got was, well, people, women in history didn't do anything interesting. Why would I want to read about them? Women in history just sat around sewing. What's fun about that? And I was just gobsmacked that the idea that women in any period were inherently uninteresting and therefore why would you write or read about them? In the first place, it's so obviously not true. But where does it come from? How do we pick up these messages and internalize them to the point where we think it's unrealistic to read or write a story about women doing interesting things? And, and it applies the same to characters of all types of diverse and marginalized uh, identities. It's how do we get these messages that says these people only have a certain narrow type of story. They, they don't have interesting stories. They've got those types of stories, and I don't want to read about that. Yeah, I, I find the philosopher Kate Mann, whose book Down Girl you may either have read or, or heard about, it's a, it's a book on misogyny and how misogyny operates in culture, and she has coined the term empathy <laughs> um, to describe how we are encouraged to identify and feel emotive connection with white men across all sorts of media spaces. She, she's talking specifically in terms of not necessarily fiction, but in coverage of things like the Kavanaugh hearing mm. or the, I forget what his name was, but the, the swimmer who was... Oh, yeah. Uh, well, the forgettable swimmer. Yeah. Rape and then let off with sort of a, a slap on the wrist yeah. because we because we wouldn't want to ruin his you know his promising future but she so she's talking about how we are taught we are expected to empathize with those people and feel sorry for them like to a much greater extent than than the situation actually warrants because we're primed to connect with white men in these stories and we're primed to be suspicious of women's testimony, of women's experience, to discount the, their their pain and their humiliation, what you know, all of those things, and look at the story from the perspective of the white male protagonist. And I think that it's really hard to dig out from 
from under that. Like being queer is not an inoculation against that. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> we all we're all out here in the, the larger media culture. So I, I'm not sure what the solution is to that other than being aware of it and pra- like exercising the muscles that stop you from automatically doing it and stepping back and saying, what am I doing here? Who am I humanizing? Who do I think is deserving of second chances? Who do I think has an interesting life story and why? And just holding that sort of alongside the things that you're reading and getting pleasure from and think about what the dynamics are in those stories that you're engaged with. So that's kind of a downer. I don't want to go out on that topic. How about a brief summing up of what are the things that bring you joy in FF historical romance? Um, Or would bring you joy if you found them? Would bring me joy... I just, I would definitely, as I said, we we talked earlier about this trend in established queer romance authors bringing in FF characters either as secondary relationships in larger um, stories or in novella sort of outtake stories. And I would really love to see those relationships take, come front and center in those spaces and see more FF romance, full-length romance that really imagines how women might have been able to establish home lives together and, you know, work lives together and all those, the rest of the sort of, like, how do they build found family for each other? Um, What sort of networks are they engaged in? So thinking about their relationship, not simply in isolation uh, in a very brief story, but thinking about those women as embedded in a much larger community that supports them and I really like another aspect of the that sort of queer found family storytelling that I really like is that it does allow for a greater variation of gender identities and types of relationships because you have a larger cast of characters and so I, I really hope that moving forward we can see more series of romance that that does something to address that resource scarcity yeah (laughs) because there's just more for everyone like there's an abundance of stories and that people don't necessarily feel that they have to find the relationship pairing that precisely mirrors their own experience or identity in order to connect with those characters but that they can they can read in the romance genre and really appreciate a full range of identities and relationships and types of desiring and types of community because there's just so much of it out there. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I hope that we can we can get to a place where we feel like it's less like it's not so necessary to protect what we already have from like outside in, invasion or outside threat and and think about creating more and more sort of sense as opposed to like let me be very protective of the space that I've already had. Like maybe if we can think about it in terms of opening up a little bit more from silo to silo, being a really generative dynamic and having more cross silo conversations, sparking more creativity and more diverse type storytelling, creating new scripts so that we're not just repeating the same old scripts over and over again. Um, So I'm hopeful I know it's not a foregone conclusion. There's still a lot of white supremacy in publishing and heteronormativity in publishing and all of that. But I do see a lot of hopeful trends coming from the margin to the center and 
and hopefully if we continue to support them by getting super excited about them on Twitter, that those things will, will become stronger uh, as we move forward. So Anna, if people wanted to follow you on social media and hear more of your wonderful opinions, where should they look? So I am primarily on Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is Feminist Lib, short for Feminist Librarian. So Feminist L-I-B. You can also find me online at thefeministlibrarian.com. My blog isn't super active these days, but that's the website has all of my various social media handles. And if I do happen to have something like this podcast where I talk about something interesting, uh, I tend to cross post it there. So people will find be able to find that. And if they're interested in, in fan fiction or part of the fan fiction community, I am on Archive of Our Own as Eliza Jane, E-L-I-Z-A-J-A-N-E. Okay, I'll put links to those in the show notes so people can find you. This has been a fascinating conversation. I've been hoping to start including some more wide-ranging discussions like this on the show. And it's been an absolute delight to have you on as a guest. Thank you. Thank you so much for the conversation. And I, I know we will continue to talk on Twitter and elsewhere. So looking forward to it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon 